This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at movies playing in cinemas right now and then we check out older films that are connected either by genre or by filmmaker and hopefully you will get turned on to some movies you did not know about and uh, and check out some new things as well. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. On today's episode, we are going back to look at the work of a, I think it's fair to say, divisive filmmaker. Contentious. Contentious, but also very popular and quite successful, M. Night Shyamalan. We'll be talking about Glass, his most recent film, and going back to his very beginnings in the early 90s. Carson, I don't know how happy you were to see the... uh the trilogy, what is now a trilogy uh, from M. Stealth, Night Shyamalan. Stealth trilogy. The stealth trilogy of, uh, what do we what do we even call it? The Unbreakable trilogy? The Philadelphia superhero <laughs> trilogy? The, uh, uh, I don't even, the Glassiverse? I yeah, I, well, marketers right now are planning it for the box set, and I don't know what they're going to call <laughs> it, but, but you know that they'll call it something. Oh, yeah, they'll come up with something. Um, and Glass, of course, is the third and final film uh, in this uh, unlikely group of movies that started with uh, Unbreakable, which came out in... 2000. 2000. Yeah. So, yeah, and we, like, we get a good, uh, was it 16 years between the first and second installment, and then the, the third one comes barreling down the track immediately afterwards. And uh, uh, it's, it's interesting to note, Unbreakable was the film that uh, M. Night Shyamalan chose to make uh, immediately after The Sixth Sense. And uh, it was an unusual film at the time. I don't know I don't know that it was as well regarded. It certainly wasn't as big a hit as The Sixth Sense was. And, it, it wasn't. Uh, and The Sixth Sense was such a huge hit. I, people might not even realize if they don't remember, but it was the, I think it still holds the record for the the most popular R-rated thriller in, in box office history. Like it's a, it was a huge, huge hit. People loved that film and it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director. And uh, yeah, it was a, a huge hit in 1999. And then, uh, then Unbreakable comes along. And this is before superheroes became so prominent in Hollywood, I'm sure that we'd had Batman in his various iterations. We'd had Superman, but but it wasn't maybe like maybe a now. couple of X Men movies. Uh, actually, point. no, X Men. I don't oh, think had arrived no, just not yet. yet. It was actually yeah around uh, around 2000 was when X Men showed up. Oh, okay. So so it was just on the cusp, and it took the superhero genre so seriously. Unbreakable, even going back to watch it now, seems very serious, very dense, very slow moving. It doesn't have what you expect from the what we've come to expect from the genre. And uh, but this is. The the thing about Shyamalan, he likes to deconstruct genre as much as he likes to play in genre. He likes to deconstruct it, and that's what he was doing here. And it, a lot of comic book fans, I think, really appreciated how seriously he took the material. Uh, and it, it still stands up. I, it's still why I'm. I, as we'll find, I think in the next hour, Stephen, I am going to be the Shyamalan apologist. I really, I am, I am always fond of his films. I think maybe there's only one or two that I wouldn't go back to watch again. Uh, this, though, is amongst his best, if not his. 
his best. I think Unbreakable is is just it's a wonderful, interesting film, and it's it at its core, it's about a relationship trying to hold on. It's about the characters played by Robin Wright and uh, and Bruce Willis trying to hang on to their marriage while all this other stuff is going on in in their lives. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess the Sixth Sense. The other thing, it made a lot of money. And but on the flip side, it was also I think made pretty cheaply. It was you know yeah. shot, shot in Philadelphia, and it's you know there there are virtually no even though it's a supernatural story, there are virtually no special effects that I can think of. Maybe some makeup effects when the kid sees dead people or whatever. But but um, but uh, you know like a monster hit that uh, left a lot up to the imagination, uh, which is something that uh, that Shyamalan's pretty good at doing. And uh, you know, so it gave him. It's kind of still has given him a blank check, I guess, to he's still catching to this day because some of these films have been monstrous failures. That's true, but he also, you're right. I think he works on a very controlled budget. Yes, uh, the visit from 2015, I gather, was made for oh, like five yeah. million yeah, micro budget, for, and then for him. yeah, and then made a huge amount of money. So as long as he can keep doing that, people will keep signing the checks for him. And uh, but another thing, of course, that we have to address is the fact that. I watched Unbreakable on DVD just to prepare for us talking about it today, and I watched some bonus features, and right there in the bonus features for that film, Shyamalan talks about his basically his personal mandate as a filmmaker. He's always been inspired by The Twilight Zone. He's always interested in stories where there is some kind of surprise or twist waiting in the third act that changes everything mm -hmm. that went on before it, but he doesn't want to be hemmed in by that. He doesn't want to feel that that has to be the thing that happens in every one of his movies. And basically, from then on, I mean, he, he there were certainly many movies of his that did have a twist, and I think people expected it to some degree, but uh, he doesn't always do it. No. He, he doesn't always do it. Though, for uh, Unbreakable, the next film, which was Signs, and the film after that, which was The Village, he definitely did. Those yes. were the big twist movies. Well, Unbreakable, I saw, I saw Unbreakable when it came out, and uh, I was... Uh, I was quite enamored of it, and and in the way that I guess it's a twist, but it's more of a slow build, mm -hmm. and and that that you know the more you know as you watch the film, I think it you get this gradual reali realization of what's going on underneath um, the relationship drama and what's happening with Bruce Willis's character, um, and I like the fact that it was you know the more you know about comics, the sooner you get it. Yeah, and. Uh, I like the fact that it didn't rely on a like all of a sudden reveal of of, of some factor whatever that that changes everything. It, it, you know, like I I think I clued in pretty quick um, for a bunch of different reasons. Maybe maybe because of Samuel L. Jackson's character being a kind of a bit over the top, and also uh, so many shots are framed like comic book panels. <laughs> yeah, know, like sure. I was I was sort of recognizing different angles that are used by certain comic book artists or a lot of like a Mike Grell kind of up in the face kind of shots and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I was sort of like, you know, I felt it kind of looked like, like a comic, you know, storyboard being brought to life on screen. And it's not something that you would necessarily pick up on watching it, but, but there were just, just, just even just the angles kind of sort of, made me think that okay well he's he's taking this very pulpy comic-y approach to to setting up what feels like a very serious human drama and then of course you know over but you know by the end the, the big reveal happens and uh but you know a lot of viewers were already there yeah so. yeah well here's a question for you steven uh, as we go forward and talk about these films are you are we gonna do should we have a spoiler warning here for our listeners uh because it's hard to talk about some of these films especially the older yeah. ones without 
getting into yeah, what I, the I problems think, I think, are. And... I think the Sixth Sense ending is pretty well known yes. <laughs> by this point. Uh, the Village, you know, it's not a film that's fondly remembered anyway. So right. uh, I don't know that that necessarily. But I'm sure it, it certainly doesn't hurt to let people know that. Uh, yeah, we, we might we, we might, might, we might into. Uh, we might reveal little... some, of, some of the. Uh, some of the salient uh, twists in some of these films. So right. if you, you know, just skip ahead a few minutes if you if we touch on a film you haven't seen or are hoping to get to at some point or or mildly curious about or whatever. Some of the, but you know, for a film that's eighteen years old, I think uh, you know yeah, it, yeah, it, it yeah, goes yeah. into the rosebud was a sled category of spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, so that brings us to Split, which was a film came out two years ago, 20, 2017. It was a surprise hit for Shyamalan. At that point, he had had a number of box office failures, uh, and his his name. I mean, really, he has a brand. There is no doubt about it. People know his name. He's uh, uh, in terms of high uh, profile filmmakers in Hollywood. I, there's not too many others like him who. When you go to see him, his films, you sort of know what you're going to get to some degree. Uh, you know, I think about Tarantino. I think about Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, I think about uh, James Cameron. I mean, these are filmmakers who can be uh, called having having a brand that people come to. Uh, but Split was uh, an all-out, you know, uh, horror movie, uh, a psychological thriller to some degree, but really, really a horror movie. And Previous to that, he had made the super low budget The Visit, which um, yeah, which we mentioned, and uh, and that had many people had thought that was sort of a return to form to some degree. At least it was a low budget form, and I think it allowed him to make Split. And then the twist in Split, which is I think we all know now, is that it's connected to Unbreakable. You don't realize that until the very end. No, but uh, Split was a film that I remember enjoying in the cinemas. I I really enjoy, and many of the things about why I enjoy. Shyamalan is even when his plots are dodgy and his logic is dodgy. He he is a talented filmmaker. He really knows where to put the camera. He's he studied his, his Hitchcock and he he can generate suspense and he knows how to work with actors and all of that Sometimes. was at his <laughs> well all of that was at his uh, his disposal I think in uh, in Split which I thought was a was a tense tension filled uh, thriller. Um, I think places where I mean I really like James McAvoy in the lead. Yeah, that might was... be the best performance in any uh, any of uh, the films. I yeah. think McAvoy. I mean, and it is a tour de force, obviously. You know, playing you know, dealing with this associative uh, or disassociative personality disorder um, or identity disorder. Uh, I think DID. Yep. I think yep. that's the proper term. Um, you know. I mean, it's designed to be a showstopper, but he pulls it off. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the you know the switches between the the, the different characters, uh, and and in Glass, he kind of ups the ante a bit because, of course, he's placed in a stressful position, and all of a sudden, he, all, the, all the identities are kind of fighting for the light, as he calls it uh, in the film. You know, it's basically whichever character happens to surface is the one who seizes the light. Um, and 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 McAvoy is is an actor that, of course, we've admired in many films prior to this, but here, uh, you know, he. he He's not coasting at all. <laughs> this is a real, uh, real force of effort, and uh, you know, and it just he just glides right through it. it yeah, seems. he does. He's great, and I, I yeah, I really like his performance. That was very involved in the film while I was in it. When I walked out, though, I remember thinking to myself, I know there's a tradition in horror movies that uh, sort of demonizes mental illness and and uh, minds our fear of mental illness, and I get that. I just. I don't know. I, I this left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. It's like, all right, here's here's the villain who's mentally ill. He's got this actual disorder that is is actually clinically diagnosed. Many some people have, and he's 
and as a result, you know, basically he's he's the bad guy. And I, yeah, I, I guess I had some issues with that. But uh, well, I guess in know. in the director's mind, uh, he's just taking Norman Bates from Psycho to a whole other level. Yeah, and I, th- yeah. you know, I think that's that's kind of what he was focused on. Um, and you know, oh, spoiler alert: Norman Bates is crazy. If you haven't seen Psycho, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh-huh. he has issues. Let's say let's let's yeah. go there. And um, uh, you know, just trying to take. Uh, you know, as you say, you know, take an idea from Hitchcock and then just, you know, take it out to the nth degree. And, and um, you know, th- there are issues, you know, in terms of the, the kind of exploitative nature of of that and his kidnapping of the women and and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, that's what gets us terrified. I, and I guess the difference between Split and Unbreakable, of course, is... Um, I think, I think he is a director that learns from his mistakes. Uh-huh. Uh, and... The there's a key change that happened with the visit, which we'll talk about later. But with the visit, he teamed up with uh, Blumhouse Productions, right. who are kind of the, the sort of upper echelon horror movie producers these days. And uh, he uh, he made obviously the very smart decision to kind of get on board with them, make the kind of films that they specialize in, and which he can obviously bring something a little more sophisticated to the table. I mean, some of their films are very good and some of them are not so great, especially when they start to get into franchise land. But um, it turned out to be a, you know, overall pretty good pairing. I don't know how much longer that association is going to continue. He may want to do something completely outside of, of that realm. But for the most part, you know, if he wants to keep making sort of suspense thrillery kind of films, they seem to be with them all the way. And I think, I think glass is a hit despite not being a critical hit. I think, it's still doing well. Yeah, it's, it was number and, one the first weekend it opened. It's number one less past weekend. Uh, so people are going to see that. And I, I he will, I, Shyamalan will continue to make films the way he wants to make them. I think he has established that he is, that's what he does. Um, yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about Glass. Uh, I, uh, my, I, I very much enjoyed Unbreakable. Split I was mixed on, but binding these two sort of uh, films together, who, which on the surface, other than the fact that they're all both set in Philadelphia, and uh, there is some overlap clearly in characters, I, I, feel, I feel like Glass is really working hard to try to knit these two, <laughs> yes. two films together in one, uh, tonally and otherwise. Um, you know, we didn't really talk about what Unbreakable is about. It's, uh, it's uh, other than that key relationship, this marriage falling apart, and they're trying to hang on to it. Um, Bruce Willis plays a man who is uh, he's a he's a security guard at a at a, a venue a stadium and he has survived a train crash and then he is starting to trying to understand how it is he he did that and uh, he is approached by this comic book aficionado played by named Elijah played uh, by Samuel L. Jackson to tell him that he might be a superhero he might have special abilities and trying to understand what that really means. Uh, meanwhile, the Bruce Willis character, David Dunn, is also trying to connect with his son. Uh, and uh, so when we get to Glass, David Dunn is now, he is alone, and his son is grown up, and they run a business together, a sort of a security equipment store. And David Dunn is still out there. He is trying to help people uh, incognito as the overseer. Uh, and, and that's when he crosses paths with uh, with with the Kevin, the character played by James McAvoy, who has continued to to abduct girls, women, and uh, is is you know terrifying the city, and so that's where it starts. They get 
captured, both captured and taken to a facility wherein they are studied by um, Sarah Paulson's character who is interested in people who have, uh, who consider themselves, they're delusional. They consider themselves superheroes and in the same institution is Elijah. He has been there and he's been heavily medicated for years. So yeah, we have the three characters brought together and I won't say hilarity ensues, but certainly things <laughs> happen that, uh, that you don't expect. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I, I like the concept. I like that he's still deconstructing superhero tropes. Um, and I like I love the way it was shot. Uh, and again, I like the way Shyamalan tells the story. Like I was gripped throughout. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I did feel, I've been thinking about it since I saw it. And my I, I've been sort of feeling that it just doesn't quite hold together, especially in the third act. Yeah, it's, it's. It- it feels like you have if you enjoyed Unbreakable and Split, you kind of need to see it, but lower your expectations because it, the third act or the finale, whatever, what the the big conclusion uh, is. I think he, yeah, I think he does drop the ball a bit in terms of uh, things that weren't necessarily set up. Well, first of all, it kind of the whole movie points towards a big finale. It's going to happen at a brand new skyscraper that's being built downtown, and. That so he's setting something up that doesn't actually happen. Yeah, he doesn't pay off. It's a total it's a, red herring. But that I, that's fine. I actually like that. Fact. Okay, that's <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm down with with setting something up expectations that mm-hmm. that don't uh, come to pass. So um, you know, so it's just basically a matte painting in the distance. <laughs> they didn't have to spend a lot of money on a on a skyscraper set, which is probably part of the appeal of uh, making this film. But um, the uh, but there are other aspects of the film that come come to play in the finale. And maybe if you haven't seen the film, maybe this is the point at which you fast forward five minutes or so. But uh, but you know the the we we know. I mean, if you're watching the film, you know that Doctor Staple, Sarah Paulson's character, you know that she's up to something. That she's not just a good psychiatrist or whatever, trying to get to the root of why these yeah. guys think she has an inordinate amount of power too. I mean, she basically takes these people yeah. for a limited time, like a weekend or something and she's, she's going to study them. And I'm like, how does she manage to swing this? These are, this is dangerous. These are dangerous yeah, they're, people. They're, well, certainly two dangerous criminals plus Bruce Willis, who, you know, obviously, you know, the laws, you know, he, he's taking the law into, he's a vigilante. So obviously he's still kind of technically a criminal with dangerous powers or whatever. And yet she's able to bring them to this, pretty old facility with very low security. Yeah, seriously. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, she's, of course, outsmarted. But, or is she? Um, or is it, were things kind of set up that way just uh, so she could test her theories and so on? But but she has another agenda that doesn't really come out at all until the finale. And it, it's it's sort of surprising and disappointing at the same time. Uh, and, th- and there's, there's something about her that's off-putting throughout the film. Like, a, like she wears kind of fairly extreme makeup, uh-huh. which makes you think that, and maybe that's on purpose to make you think that maybe she's super powered perhaps or something like that. And she definitely has like a hidden agenda, hidden, uh, purpose, but it's not necessarily super powered, but there's obviously something going on behind the scenes, which we do find out. And it's kind of. Maybe not what we hope. So maybe that's an expectation that he was also kind of secretly setting up and then foiling as well. Um, so maybe I feel like I've, uh, you know, the, the 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 big showdown at the the tower with the nuclear plant was it some sort of nuclear facility on the thirtieth floor or something like that? Because of course that would happen. Um, but um, 
the, the, there's something else about her storyline that just proves to be unsettling and, and kind of disappointing ultimately. Yeah, yeah, there is something. And yeah, and there's, there's I just, having really enjoyed, having enjoyed Unbreakable, I guess the point I was trying to make earlier, and Split, I felt like David Dunn and his son are mu- in this far too little. They just have too little to do. Yeah. I feel like James McAvoy is still hogging a lot of the screen time and a lot of the sort of emotional energy of the story, whereas I wanted there to be more more with Bruce Willis's character and more about him uh, because I have really fond, I felt more connected to him than I did to the split where where basically the McAvoy's character, however you want to call him the beast or Kevin, he is the villain. I mean, he is a villainous character and mm. I, I just felt like the there was too much, too much time spent with him. And I get that he's interesting because he's kind of at war with himself all the time. And I, I understand that. But yeah, I, there were other things that went in the end that I just felt were a little, just a bit of a let down and and uh, uh, I didn't yeah I just felt like I did I, did, I felt like it was there there was a bit ham-handed I guess in in this in wrapping all of this up yeah there, there's some legitimate undermining of of comic book movie cliches but then you're right and then but then there's some clumsy storytelling and it's hard to tell where one ends and one begins and uh, you know I'll probably return to it at some point I may even you know like just watch the trilogy in its entirety, but um, it is it does end with more of a whimper than a bang, and and I you know and again that's part of it is part of me is kind of appreciates that fact, but some of it is very clumsily handled. And uh, okay, this is a spoiler, so you've been warned. But you know, at the end, we learn that there is this secret society that is been kind of put you know that is gathered together to stop the rise of the superhumans basically and yet you know this is sort of a new thing like this has never been hinted at in the previous films i don't think and it would have been nice if it had yeah, yeah. it would have been nice if there'd been that long a game plan but i don't know when at which point this became you know a trilogy i guess maybe in his head it was as soon as unbreakable wrapped i suppose but but um you know t- to all of a sudden bring out this uh this weird secret clan of assassins that takes out superheroes or super powered uh, humans it just it just comes out of nowhere and it's not really a twist it's just a, a sort of an unearned revelation and is you know and it seems to me that you think that maybe glass you know that, that Elijah might be kind of aware that of them or something like he would it, it's he's so smart and so on top of everything that even he is sort of taken aback by it so I you know maybe it's just to prove that he's not infallible but at the same time it seems disappointing that the super genius is is uh, completely unaware. About yeah, these. and he, he spent a lot of time in that institution. He didn't find some way to get out previous to to the events are happening in this film. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, we, we you know as we learn uh, that he, you know he's way more capable. You know, it looks like he's just you know been drugged on Thorazine or whatever, and is just in a stupor the whole time. And then of course we learn that that is not the case, and that's not a not not really much of a reveal there. <laughs> Obviously, he, at some point we're going to find out that he's. Uh, even though he's in a wheelchair, he's fully at the top of his uh, cranial capacity that he wouldn't have done some research into uh, Dr. Paulson and try to figure out what her deal is yeah. on some level and, and been able to, he's such a super genius that, 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 and that's something that didn't really occur to me right away. That, that took me a little while to figure. It's like, he should have been at least know that there was more to her than met the eye. And it, it doesn't, and it doesn't seem that he realizes that at any point yeah. until it's like too late or what, what have you towards the end. Um, 
So that's you know that's a that's a big grain of salt to take with the film. But you know, like I say, if if you've seen the first two, you kind of are semi obligated to see Glass at some point just to see it all wrap up and see the the ultimate fate of these characters. Um, and you know, and then there's the whole issue of you know what happens to these characters. Does it is it feel earned? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I don't know. It, it's it's a bit of a disappointment, and I, I won't say much more about that. But. But, you know, especially with the character, you know, we've invested so much in David Dunn, if we've been following since Unbreakable, um, you know, his ultimate fate feels a bit just kind of pathetic and yeah, sad. I, I agree. I agree. And, and uh, you know, why do why does this group just meet in restaurants when people leave and suddenly what, they, they can't, like, hire up a community hall or something? To get <laughs> yeah, together? Oh, yeah, well, anyway, there's uh, a lot of unanswered questions. Pretty much anything associated with the secret cabal of anti-superhumans mm-hmm. is I mean, it, nothing about that works. Yeah. So I yeah. guess you know that's just if if maybe some of it seemed plausible or intriguing even, and it's not you know just a bunch of faceless guys yeah. with uh, you know with special tattoos is really yeah. It would have been nice even if they had seeded some of that earlier in this film. Oh let yeah, alone yeah. the previous even, films. You know, and maybe there maybe there's a much. shot of a tattoo early in the film, but I don't think there is. No. Um, um, you know what? I, I, at one point, I was just like, well, maybe if this this trilogy was to become an ongoing franchise and uh, you can bet that the money people are thinking that right now maybe they should call up Sylvester Stallone and see if Shyamalan will direct a, a Rocky movie <laughs> and then all have it set in Philadelphia and maybe Rocky is a secret superhero <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, Bruce Willis's son versus Creed there you go there you go <laughs> you're on something yeah let's get this uh, let's, you know let's get this Philadelphia verse uh, going uh, well that's that's probably enough on, on that trilogy but well we're going to go a little deeper into the Shyama Laminate verse. There's a tongue twister uh, right, after, right after this break. So as we mentioned, the world was largely introduced to the work of M. Night Shyamalan in his third film, The Sixth Sense, which was an enormous hit. But he, in fact, made two more films, two earlier films to The Sixth Sense that I wasn't really aware of before I we started to look into his work. He, incidentally, a little biographical detail, uh, M. Night Shyamalan was born in 1970 in August um, in Pondicherry in India and as he explained to Stephen Colbert, I saw an interview with him, his father believed in the American dream and wanted it so much that he chose to go to Philadelphia, which is the home of, of course, the American dream where the Liberty Bell is and where it all began and uh, Shyamalan sets many, if not most of his features there, uh, though he went to film school at NYU. Uh, now, his first film was was produced by his parents, so clearly they were supportive of his career as a filmmaker. Um, and he made, and it was called Praying with Anger in 1992. The, he wrote, produced, and directed the film, as he does with many of his films. Um, it's about an American teenager gets sent to India to connect with his roots and discovers a very different society to the one he was raised in. Shyamalan is also the lead in the film, so he's acting in it as well. You, you, um, you know, he does tend to do that Hitchcock thing where he shows up in his own films, but a lot more than a cameo. He's frequently a supporting cast in his films. This one, he's right in the center of it. And if you want to watch it, it there is a kind of a crappy copy available on YouTube. And yeah, it doesn't look very definitely good. taken from VHS. Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, I, you know, as a first film, as what I consider sort of a student film, he was 21 or something when he made it, it's actually not bad. It's kind of a fish-out-of-water drama, coming-of-age film. Uh, I found the acting to be fairly amateur hour, but otherwise you can see that Shyamalan has some real chops as a storyteller, you know, even at that young age. And, oh, I've got to assume that uh, given his own heritage, uh, that Praying with Anger has some kind of autobiographical connection to him and to his his experience. Well, yeah, it's about a kind of a stubborn kid 
from the States who goes back to his parents' homeland. And uh, I don't know if they say if he was born in India in the film or if he was, I mean, obviously he grew up in the States. He considers himself an American. He's really not that interested in going back to India. They ask him, he, he describes it as being like punishment where I'd be like, hey, free trip to India. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd, but but he's, he sees it as kind of a punishment and he's got a lot to learn about, uh, you know, respecting elders and, and learning the, the ways of, of the, the systems that are in place in, in terms of um, discipline and so on in, in the school that he goes to uh, for a semester. And, uh, and also getting along with the sort of his host family because he starts to meddle in their lives as well. You know, think, you know, bringing his sort of Yankee doodle dandyisms <laughs> to this very traditional, very strict uh, Indian family with, a, with the, the, the son who becomes his pal and the daughter who's, you know, kind of uh, wants to get out of the arranged marriage system. So, uh, you know, there's an, everything in this film feels pretty familiar. Everything feels like we've kind of seen all this stuff before. Uh, but but it's, you know, it is engagingly told that some of the visuals, if the copy that was available was better, I'm sure it would be a much more impressive looking film. There, there are some awkward moments. Uh, the scene where they get, uh, he and his pal get stuck, he goes back to his dad's old village and they get stuck there when bandits steal all their money. Um, and so he's, they're stuck there, and uh, there's this lighthearted moment where he challenges a bunch of local kids to a game of football. And I just kept thinking of the room, <laughs> you know, this obsession <laughs> right. with football. Right. But it, it's, it's meant to be cute and bring a little lightness. Uh, there are scenes where he tries to inject some humor into things, and uh, it doesn't always work. Uh, it's not always his – I you know, I think he does have a sense of humor. It doesn't always come across. Or, or when it does in a film, it's often kind of heavy-handed and, and just goofy, and that's that's certainly the case here. But um, but certainly the, the the look of the film, he I, he worked with some crew members that he he'd hired uh, in India, so um, you know he's got some some professionals uh, helping him along, and so it looks great. It's well edited, uh, well shot, um, and uh, you know it's got a decent score even. Uh, and, and yeah, if, if you're remotely interested, there there is a slight supernatural element to it, so you can kind of tie it in, but to uh, to his oeuvre, if you will. But it's it's certainly not the driving force of the story. But it's kind of interesting when it does turn up in a couple of places over the course of the film. But um, but yeah, it's not uh, it's 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 not gonna. If you watch it, you wouldn't think oh, the guy who made the Sixth Sense is clearly uh, involved in this picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think thematically, a lot of his films have to do with uh, you know. A, a singular character who's in the woods and in search of redemption. Of course, that's true of a lot of a lot of movies. But oh, uh, sure. but you know that that feeling of someone who's lost and needs to be found, and sometimes has uh, through their faith needs to recapture their faith or needs to find out who their true identity is in some capacity. And sometimes that has has a supernatural twist to it. Um, now, uh, after. Uh, praying with anger, he made one other film that in 1995 that wasn't released until 98, and it I guess found it, it struggled to find release. Now it <laughs> I, I, it's still un, unseen by me. It's called Wide Awake. Yeah, I, I saw copies of it floating around. Okay, uh, but uh, I never had the wherewithal to rent it. It's not. I don't think it's online anywhere. I I, I think whatever cloud he's got, he's used to kind of pull these out of circulation. Um, th- I mean, if if you go on IMDb trivia, claims that he tried to buy up all available VHS copies of Praying with Anger. So oh, okay, I don't know how. Tr- that, that seems that would be virtually imp- if it was a widely distributed film, that'd be virtually impossible. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, maybe all the copies in Philadelphia. Who knows? But uh, but yeah, he definitely made a step up with his second film, which is uh, an American production. I believe it was shot in Philadelphia. But clearly, Praying with Anger was enough of a calling card that he uh, was able to make um, 
this film about a little kid who's uh, and, and kind of foreshadowing Sixth Sense. He turns out he works out pretty well with uh, child actors, but uh, he uh, it's about a little kid whose grandfather dies, and the kid goes on as kind of a journey to find out why God would do such a thing and who is God anyway. And uh-huh. uh, you know, I'm actually kind of tempted to track this down. It's got a pretty strong cast. Yeah, uh, Dennis Leary, Rosie O'Donnell, Dana, Robert, Del- Dana Delaney. Yeah, Robert Loggia, who I always liked. Uh, Julia Stiles. So it's got, yeah, it was uh, obviously had more of a budget, certainly for for the cast, uh, but it looks like it uh, it kind of sat on the shelf for a while. And somebody, I guess, when it, maybe when Sixth Sense was in production, somebody knew that this guy would be a, you know enough of a name that it'd be worth it to release this film and kind of hopefully ride the wave of of Sixth Sense popularity. So, which was apparently a smart move because, yeah. um, uh, you know. The, the, this would have appeared on video store shelves just before Sixth Sense came out. And uh, so obviously people will be curious about it and want to see it, but it's, it's certainly a different kind of film. And it, but it does deal with those issues of faith that would come up again and again in these films, especially in signs, obviously. Right. Um, you know, lapsed faith and wondering about the nature of God and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which uh, is certainly not something that a lot of other major, you know, headlining uh, filmmakers uh, care to do in, in big studio projects. So at least it's welcome to see kind of a change of pace there. Yeah, I, I noticed that he, and I, I think we should talk about signs, but, uh, you know, I noticed that there's something else he does, and I believe this is to uh, limit, you know, keep his budget in in check, is that he very much in his films, if not entirely, uh, largely sets them in a single location. Like I would say most of his films, many of them have uh, maybe the sixth sense being the, uh, uh, the, the outlier there, but the take place in, in sort of one area or a very restricted area. Um, this, uh, you know, signs set, uh, shot released in 2002. It's his alien invasion movie, but it's all set on a farm with, you know, surrounded by corn fields and uh, and of course it's it jumps off this idea of uh, of circles corn circles uh, crop circles I should say in farmers fields and uh, it stars Mel Gibson as the farmer who is bereft he used to be a uh, um, he used to he used to be a minister and he he lost his faith when he lost his wife uh, in a car accident and uh, it turns out that her last words to him uh, had uh, a powerful uh you know powerful impact especially later in the film as we discover and it and it's a, it's about omens and it's about uh trying to hang on to those invisible threads of the universe in some ways i actually quite like that i think i think gibson's quite good in this he plays he underplays in a way that he rarely does in his films and joaquin phoenix is is quite great too uh, he's typically great um you know in some ways it reminded me a little bit of field of dreams where there's there's b- this baseball sort of um yeah, field of screams <laughs> baseball sort of subplot in in it but uh yeah i i uh i remember thinking that that again and it does have kind of a twist but it's much more low-key it's much more about the characters this time which yeah. i think makes sells the twist when it does sort of arrive uh and uh yeah and i did didn't mention that somewhere along the way here Shyamalan also wrote the script for Stuart Little, the uh, animated <laughs> film. But, uh, I, you know, that's definitely, that feels like something he did on spec, um, you know, or he was paid to, or maybe he was paid to do that. Uh, he didn't direct that. And, uh, but Signs very much has that, uh, that, that Shyamalan quality to it. And uh, I think it holds up. Yeah, I, I liked Signs when I saw it at the time. And I know that uh, after the fact, a lot of people complained about the so-called twist in the film. I mean, I, First of all, that you know there are aliens in the film. It's not a it's not like a um, a fake out that the aliens actually do arrive. And then uh, he borrows a little note from H.G. Uh, Wells' War of the Worlds, um, 
for his climax. So, you know, clearly what happens to the aliens is, is an homage to that great original alien invasion work, uh, both in fiction and on eventually on film. Um, so, you know, so maybe it's a bit of a, <laughs> a weak premise, but, but, uh, you know, you have kind of have to know where it comes from and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's to some, it seems like a serious logic flaw, but it's, you know, the best laid plans of mice and aliens. Yeah. Off, off goes Trey, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was that. And then he went on to make The Village, which I think is maybe one of his most poorly, that and maybe The Happening are the most poorly reviewed films in his in his uh, catalog. Now, The Village I rewatched, and The Village has a lot going for it. It has a very well, it's like set in the past in, in, in the 1900s on, in this very remote village in the Pennsylvania countryside again, near, 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 uh, Philadelphia. Uh, but these people are living this very remote and very isolated community and the characters are well drawn. There is a sort of a love triangle, a love affair going on in the middle. I really like Bryce Dallas Howard and, um, Joaquin Phoenix again are together in the film and I, I like that connection, but it's a film that feels like it doesn't have a third act. There is a twist that arrives very late, and I guess we should probably just say, "Heads up, we're gonna—I'm gonna reveal it right now." Um, <laughs> they aren't actually in the past; they are in the current day, and then—and somehow this whole—it's this kind of a social experiment by the elders in the in the community who decided they wanted to have go back in time and and live live in this style in in the in the the time of the 1900s and not tell any of the kids or any of the children any of the younger people what was actually going on and it feels like when uh bryce dallas howard's character ivy who is blind ventures beyond the the edge of the village and and finds she has to go and find help uh due to something terrible have happened and she needs to go find medicine when she is able to do that i sort of feel like she should have discovered the truth and brought it back to the village and then told all the uh the 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 young people the truth and then the real drama starts the, the generational schism. Like I just felt like I was, it was just getting to the good part when it ends. ends yeah. You know, uh, I, I figured it out pretty early on. Okay. I, I don't know what, it, there was something about, and maybe, maybe that they were, the language is a little too stilted that it was almost like a trying too hard to make it seem ancient kind of thing, which is funny because the witch you know, which has nothing to do with Shyamalan, but it, you know, does sort of the same thing. But right, it, but the, right off the bat, you clearly know it's set in you know pre-colonial times or whatever colonial times. Whereas here, you know, you're not really sure because it's all set in this one particular village and everything's a little too pristine. I thought, mm. uh, and was it William Hurt's like a deranged millionaire or something <laughs> who decided that. You know, he just wanted to leave the the outside world behind and created yeah. this community. Yeah, with with a group of other people who all had like trauma in their lives. Yeah, and uh, and there's like a sort of a you know a monster that's supposed to patrol the edge of the woods that pe- everyone's supposed to be scared of uh, <laughs> to uh, to keep them from venturing too far and wind up going off the estate and of course into the real world. Uh, and uh, so I I just felt the whole thing. I thought, well, there there are some. It's a great cast. And and there are good performances here, but I felt the whole thing a little forced. Like I, I just, uh, you know, once I, you know, I, within the first, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, I, I kind of, my brain kind of, oh, this is 
it's my, they're not really in the past. Well, I think this is the our expectation now, Shyamalan. Is well, that's that, the is thing. That there's going to yeah. be a twist some, somewhere in there. And by this point, having made the Sixth Sense Unbreakable Signs and then The Village, it's like, okay, we know there's something. So people are looking for it. And I remember thinking, what is it? What is it? When I first saw it. And yeah, then, then when it happened, I was like, yeah, right. Of course it is. But it, this is the kind of twist that upsets audiences. You know, I think it upsets them more than, than thrills them, especially when you're not super, when there's more story to be told. And I think that's the mistake with The Village. Yeah, it, it sets you up for something that uh, ultimately, it, it, you know, it, when, when, you get, when you get what the twist is and then it just comes and it's exactly what you expect and it's kind of like, oh. Okay, well, why was I, you know, I feel like you kind of feel like you wasted your time a little bit on the film. But, uh, you know, Hurt's very good and Bryce Dallas Howard is very good and, uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Brendan Gleeson. I mean, these are actors I'll watch do just about anything. So, you know, I don't regret having seen it, but I certainly won't return to it anytime soon. Well, the Village got mixed reviews, but the films that follow uh, are, are well, let's call this the, the sharp decline of, uh, I mean, The Village was a bit of a fall off from the promise of things like uh, of, of um, The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and, and even Signs, for those of us who, who actually liked it. Um, but then uh, came a film which I abhorred. I just, I just detested this film. But, and, and here's, where, uh, here's where Carson's uh, apologist uh, credentials kick in. Lady, <laughs> Lady in the Water. Um, which is a, a very broad and, and you know I'll, I'll I'll give him credit it's a nervy allegory <laughs> from Shyamalan um, about um, you know an apartment complex that has a, a mermaid uh, living in its swimming pool or at least has like a dimensional portal I guess to its own world through the swimming pool and uh, I'll be honest I have not revisited this since I saw it in the theater so I'm going to be a little sketchy on the details but uh, yeah just everything about this movie rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, Almost from the get go. I mean, it's it's it is it is kind of an allegory slash fairy tale. It's, it's meant to be a modern day fairy tale, so all the performances are a bit oversized, and uh, uh, and I guess that's fine. But it just uh, it just lost me right from the get go. Yeah, it didn't lose me. This is the one I I have gone back to a couple times, and I I really enjoy it. And I'll say why. Uh, Paul Giamatti plays Cleveland. He's an apartment superintendent who lives sort of in a shack near the building's outdoor pool. And he's despondent, sort of on the margins of his own world, both, you know, physically and emotionally. And uh, he discovers this young woman and he realizes she's a mythical creature. And then she real he realizes that there's a story. There's a sort of story about mythical creatures that he tries to follow and, and, he, and he needs to recruit the the people who live in the building in order to try to get this girl, this woman played by Bryce Dallas Howard back to her own world. And she's being threatened by other mythical creatures as well that, that sort of are around the building. And so it's, it, it feels like a, a fairy tale movie feels a little bit like Disney feels a little bit like, I mean, he definitely dipping into Spielberg and Amblin kind of that tone. That's what he's going for. There is a lot of, telling and not too much showing and that's the the biggest beef I have with the film is that there's a lot of talking about the myth and trying to understand what it means and and he recruits all these people I actually don't know how he does it because it's sort of like it's a little bit fast-tracked like Paul Giamatti's character is able to get all these these tenants on side with him 
and to believe in this in this myth that he's trying, the story that he's trying to follow, he's trying to help this girl. But uh, it doesn't really explain how he does it. They, he just seems to be able to convince them willy nilly, <laughs> yeah. and they all show up and they all play along. And that to me is uh, you know is the biggest fault in this. And if there is a major fault, it's that. But you know, you got Bob Balaban, you've got Jeffrey Wright, you've got um, Jared Harris. I mean, there's again a great cast cast anchoring the story and in the realistic world. And, and I think that's one of the things I like about Shyamalan is his ability to try to, to root it in some place that you sort of recognize while having these fantastic elements over top. So anyway, there's, I think there's a lot of humor in it and uh, I don't think he's taking this too seriously. And there is a shot in the end from within the swimming pool. He really likes to get down in water with his yes. cameras. Yes, he's still um, glass for where, sure. Where a, a mythical creature flies down. And it reminded me of the of, of uh, Peter Weir's The Last Wave in the end of that. Like that's the kind of <laughs> intensity it had for me watching the film. So anyway, all of which to say is I, I am, this is the one I think of his that is the least admired by critics, but the one that I like the most. It's also the film, apart from praying with anger where he gives himself his biggest role right yes, and yes not to the benefit of the film at all <laughs> um in mm-hmm. fact he he's basically uses his own character to give the finger to his critics of his previous films and it just oh did that ever rub me the wrong way that <laughs> you know that that's i mean i wasn't i was kind of down on the film at, at, anyway and then his character shows up and you know that's just like oh this is <laughs> what are you doing? This is a mess. Um, and, and uh, yeah, you know, that was just kind of, and even if that character had been played by somebody other than himself, cause he's not a, a convincing or, 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 you know, a uh, relaxed actor on screen, even if he had given to someone a, a little, you know, a little better versed in the thespian skills. Uh, I don't think it would have worked uh-huh. that, that character, that kind of fourth wall breaking thing that he was trying to do there. It, it you know, it's like, tell this story and maybe a little better and you know it, it won't go off the rails so badly but I, yeah I just felt this was a complete complete miss as was the happening <laughs> the happening in 2008 which, yeah this is one I'm a little more on board with you Stephen yeah uh, well, and it, though though it's funny you know it's like over the holidays uh, Bird Box on Netflix was this oh my huge gosh. hit, right? This huge Holy, hit. Yes. And I watched that and I kept thinking like what is this reminding me of? And it's kind of reminding me of the happening in that the evil, the evil force is unseen. You can't see it without wanting to kill yourself. And that's kind of the premise of the happening. And yet Bird Box was adored and the happening wasn't. So, you know, that that's a little bit of a mystery. It, it is odd. I mean, I guess, and, and of course the, the, you know, the characters wind up getting out of their comfort zone. I and mean, there's a lot of similarities between Bird Box and the happening. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Bird Box had a better focus. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, there's, I think the happening has a lot more wandering aimlessly around the countryside. Yes, that's and true. Bird Box probably sets up its premise a little bit better, even though it is pretty much the same premise. And maybe Sandra Bullock is way more appealing than Mark Wahlberg, which yes, I think might have also a major, major yeah. thing to do. And you've got Malkovich, and, and, and maybe it's you know more strongly cast and better directed. But um, I, I, I actually did not watch this until this week past. I just stayed far away from it, having been burned by Lady in the Water. And then the early reviews of the happening came out and... Uh, who boy were they ever not positive? Um, so as I was watching this, I was kind of bracing myself, and yeah, there are. It is kind of stiff and awkward, um, but it 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 is it. The setup works pretty well, mm. uh, and then it just I don't know if it's just too much wandering around in the countryside. They kind of get trapped as more and more people succumb to. Uh, well, I, I, this 
you know, it's not the twist, but the basically the premise of the film is that the the plants and trees are kind of creating a toxin that makes humans kill themselves. Um, so it's you know because of course we're destroying the planet. So why wouldn't they? <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard to get mad at the trees, really. And uh, and and so of course they realize that a if they don't you know they split up and get out of you know stop being in large groups that you know they have a better chance and all this kind of stuff and so you know it's interesting in its progression and but it just kind of goes nowhere i guess is is the the problem with the film more so than it being outlandishly bad as i feel lady in the water is um and <laughs> but but i feel like i feel like characters are not well directed i i feel like maybe this was you know it, it was all shot in the countryside it it feels like it was not a, a a big budget film, which I guess maybe is to its credit, but also maybe that was a little rushed. That that some yeah. of the, some of the line readings and deliveries are kind of kind of awkwardly stiff. Betty Buckley, um, they, a character Betty Buckley who was previously in um, was she in Signs? I think she's in a couple. Or no, she's in Unbreakable. Maybe I, she shows up in it. She, well, she's in Split. Split. Uh, yeah. yeah. So she she's been in a couple of his films at least. Um, she shows up as a woman living in an old farmhouse, living off the grid, who doesn't know anything about what's happening. And she's either very welcoming or very hostile, depending on her mood. I, I don't know if she's got some some uh, mental health issues or something that are never really addressed, but she's a very strange character who uh, is never really properly addressed or explained um, towards the end of the film. And and then it just kind of resets to normal at the end of the film. I, f- I, f- I feel like, well, that's not really... It's hard. How is that possible? To yeah, just, yeah. I, mean, I felt goes, like I it was back to normal. It so. was like a post-apocalyptic movie that didn't ha- have confidence in his in its convictions. Uh, it just, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, it didn't. It doesn't go anywhere, and this is a, the problem with it. I mean, but there are, I think, yeah. In this there case, are some I felt the premise was sound. Right. Yeah, and there are some. You know, it's nice to see John Leguizamo in a, in, a, in a fairly substantial role because I hadn't seen him in a film in a while. But but there are some weird, awkward. You know, and even something like the blocking of scenes is weird, and it, and I think it just comes from like trying to make it cheap and fast. And yeah, and it it's just shows. hard to believe Wahlberg is a science school teacher, yeah, well, like any, any yeah, kind that's... of academic. Like he just doesn't have that vibe to him. No offense, Mr. Wahlberg, but that's just uh, you know. At one point, he has him talking to a potted plant, which I thought was pretty funny. There's moments here that feels oh, a little there, bit like there a Python esque yeah, kind of film. There, there, there are, are some, some humor. There is. There are funny moments. There are some sort of shocking moments uh it's 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 interesting to watch it kind of slowly come apart at the seams uh which is you know i guess is a lesson of learned if and it's it's fairly brisk it's like a minute an hour and 40 minutes or something like that so it doesn't really waste your time so much but um but yeah it was it was uh i I don't know if i call it a disappointment i i I think i liked it a little more than lady in the water but um but ultimately, it's still not a good film. Yeah, yeah. Well, after that, he made the big budget The Last Airbender, which is an adaptation of a very popular animated series. Uh, and I, I enjoyed the production design, and I sort of enjoyed some of the action sequences in it, but it's it's very stiff and very poorly cast film. I actually thought Asif Manvi and Dev Patel do good jobs, but the I, the child actors, the poor child actors, are really saddled with a lot of really cheesy, lumpen dialogue. And they're they're all, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I felt a little bit um, annoyed that they were all so American. Like, I just, maybe it's because the material here is clearly borrowing from all these Eastern cultures. Yeah, And, and then to exactly. cast 
all these American kids in the leads, I just was like, the, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about cultural appropriation and how it's done. I mean, I certainly done within the 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 animated series. This is because it's created by two white guys, two American guys. Uh, but yeah, it just I just was confused by it. And even as an adult, I felt like even though this is clearly aimed as kids, I was having trouble following all the plot twists and all the ways in which the characters this this lead little boy has a special gift, but he can't. He can only use one of the four elements that he can control and then there are these warlike the fire nation is attacking the other nations but why and there's just there's a lot going on that the film doesn't do a good job at explaining yeah well they're basically trying to compress a full season of an animated fantasy adventure series into two-hour movie and uh, a lot of um, a lot of exposition gets left in the wake Uh, because I you know because I this is another one that I avoided when it first came out firstly because I was not necessarily a fan of the original series and I, I had no feelings about it whatsoever. I was just never watched it. It was, it was like an American attempt at creating American anime, I guess, or in that style. Um, so it was like, I wasn't that interested in the series to begin with. And then it came out, you know, as this, uh, I guess like $300 million feature film that, you know, may have made a third of that back. If yeah. that, and they uh, were hoping for a franchise for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it ends on a note that makes you think there's, you know, there's definitely going to be a sequel. There's not going to be a sequel. Um, and so I don't know how that ties in with the actual series, but, um, you know, so the, it was, it was a hugely expensive version of a TV series that had a pretty niche following. I think at that point, um, you know, obviously he wanted to do something in the comic realm and, uh, and this was, I guess, a franchise that nobody had gone after up to that point. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it 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 does this hash job of combining all the mystic elements of various uh, Eastern religions and philosophies, and they're all just kind of jumbled together, which isn't necessarily a bad idea. I mean, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien kind of did the same thing with kind of Celtic Gaelic folklore and Welsh folklore in in, in Lord of the Rings, and that turned out okay. But uh, trying to do it on the Eastern scale without the same kind of vision or grasp of a Peter Jackson, I guess, is, is kind of a mistake, especially when you're not going to be able to finish your story. Um, and, uh, yeah, the whole thing between the, 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 the fire, earth, water and air clans is never fully laid out. Like, you know, why, why all of a sudden the fire guys are the bad guys. And they're, uh-huh. they're, they're largely played by East Indian actors. Like you mentioned, Dev Patel and Asif Mamvi, and they're actually pretty good. I mean, they, they kind of, you know, the, the, they have the right approach to their characters, uh, you know, playing them a little comic booky, a little larger than life, um, with a dash of soap opera. Uh, but yeah, those, those, the leads, for example, like one of the characters, uh, not the main, not the kid who's playing the last airbender himself, who's kind of basically like this action figure Buddha, you know, who's supposed to be the reincarnation of, uh, the previous airbender who could control all the, all the elements. But, um, you know, there's the two kids, I guess they're brother and sister from the Arctic and the brother in the comic or the, in the, the animated series, he's kind of the comic relief. Like he's kind of the wise cracking, you know, wise guy, know it all, you know, foolhardy, you know, wanna be hero kind of guy, you know, kind of a brash personality, um, maybe a kind of a hand solo kind of character for lack of a better term, while uh the last airbender, uh what's his name? Aang is kind of the Luke Skywalker, I suppose. Um but yet, you know, his character is given no dialogue that's remotely amusing. Uh no, and is he's pretty play- bland. Played by a, an actor who brings no no charisma to the role and is giving nothing given nothing fun or or humorous to do. So yeah, the 
there's very little humor in this film, uh, and it's so dry and just matter of fact that to, you know getting through it is a bit of a chore. Even yeah. though, even though there's some great effects, uh, the you know the final battle scene is fairly impressive. Um, you know, there 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 is obviously a lot of money on the screen, but uh, I like the ships. The ships were yeah. cool, like some of the production design. Yeah, yeah production right. design, the look of the film, a lot more effort went into that than into, uh, you know, the casting or, or the script. Yeah, so we are rapidly losing time here. We don't have much time left, but uh, just a nod to a film called Devil that he that Shyamalan wrote but didn't direct about a group of people stuck in an elevator, apparently, dealing with supernatural elements. After that, he did... After Earth, which is a film neither of us have seen, <laughs> starring Will Smith and his son Jaden, which I gather it's a sci-fi. I gather it's maybe his one of his worst reviewed films. Did I say that about the village? Yeah, well, happening? I don't know. It's, it's four point it eight well. on IMDb. That's I mean, yeah. I, I don't necessarily trust those ratings, but that's that's not great. Yeah. Um, so that leads us to his return to form, to, which some people said in advance of Split, which was The Visit in 2015. Now, uh, I watched this film and it's maybe my least favorite Shyamalan film of the ones we watched. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I really didn't like it. Uh, I like the kids in the lead have really great characters and there's some light humor that they bring to it. Basically, the story of a bunch of kids whose mother was was uh, uh, estranged from her parents and they go to see their grandparents for the first time in a rural area in Pennsylvania and they discover their grandparents are weird and have strange secrets. And really, it's a film that uses old people and the mentally ill as the villains. And I just was really kind of grossed out by it. Uh, that and also the fact that it's done in the sort of mockumentary fo- found footage style, which is so played out. Yes, yeah, so that been, aspect of it, it is, it's, has I, that immediately this terribly. Yeah. It, it turned me off of the film right away. And I was just like, oh, we got to do this again. I mean, it's reasonably plausible that she is the 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 teenage girl is really into making a documentary of her visit, her first visit with her grandparents. But I was just like, they're kind of half playing it for laughs and half playing it for scares. I didn't think either of it worked. And yeah, and I was just kind of like, I was just kind of annoyed by the idea that, oh, we're going to make these, this older couple, the you know, and they're, their decrepitude, the uh, the scary part of the film. Oh, and then it ends with this very sort of like heartwarming coda, which I didn't buy either. Well, yeah, I I don't think it's a perfect film, but I I did go in with extremely low expectations, and uh, and at least found that those were somewhat bested. I, I found it pretty creepy. Uh, you're right about the found footage thing. I, I I thought it was a little better made than a lot of the. I I think after seeing so many crappy found footagey kind of movies, that this was at least was fairly true to the concept without being as annoyingly shaky cam and all that kind of thing. And, and, and uh, I liked a lot of the performances. So that was enough for me to kind of, you know, well, okay, at least he's kind of climbing out of the hole now with this film. But uh, yeah, I mean, like you say, the, the, cons, the, the, the execution of that concept does date it a fair bit. So I'm kind of curious to go back and revisit the visit and see how it turns out. <laughs> wraps up our look at uh, an always interesting, if not always pleasing director, <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan, uh, going from uh, his early uh, promising beginnings, his blockbuster breakout, The Sixth Sense, his kind of precipitous drop-off <laughs> mid-career, and now we are in the midst of uh, some sort of Shyamalanaissance. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh, nice. Sorry, I, that didn't quite work the way I wanted it to, but we'll, we'll just leave it at that. We'll go with that. We'll yeah. With that. He'll, have a, he'll have another film out in the next couple of years called Labor of Love. This is another script that he had in the drawer forever, and it's finally getting produced. And I don't know too much about it, but if you're interested, I gather you can find it online, that uh, screenplay. 
yeah, I'll be curious to see how that turns out. And uh, of course, we'll be uh, curious to see if you tune in again next time here on Lends Me Your Ears. Of course, you can find us on Stitcher and Spotify and iTunes. And of course, live every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. on CKDU 88.1 FM, who we, of course, thank for the use of their studios to uh, to produce this sucker. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me online at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E on Twitter. Uh, my name's Karsten Knox, and you can find me online on Twitter as well. Uh, the name of my blog is the name of my Twitter handle, Flaw in the Iris. We do have a Patreon account, which you can Google and uh, throw some money our way if you enjoy the show. And of course, uh, thanks as always to the folks at the Village Sound Cast Network for putting it all together. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 